share with someone if you have your prayer before you the prayer looking forward to the return of Christ from the book of common prayer let's offer it together almighty God give us grace to cast away the works of darkness and put on the armor of light now in the time of this mortal life in which your son Jesus Christ came to visit us in great humility that in the last day when he shall come again in his glorious majesty to judge both the living and the dead, we may rise to life immortal. Through him who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Great. So, go to Revelation 3. We will finish up the seven churches today, which means, by the way, um, next week, next few weeks, we'll be in what I think is the defining chapters of the book of Revelation, uh, chapters 4 and 5. In chapters 4 and 5, we visit heaven, and everything that comes out of that um, will be the rest of the book. Uh, so here in chapters 2 and 3, we're visiting earth, these churches that existed in John's day, and then uh, next week we'll be in heaven in chapters 4. We'll start chapters 4 and 5. So we've looked at the seven churches. We will finish up today with the church in Philadelphia and the church in Laodicea. Um, Perhaps the best church and the worst church among these seven. So look at Philadelphia 3, 7, and following. We can go through these pretty quickly because we've talked about Uh, several of the things that will be reappearing here in this text concerning Philadelphia and concerning Laodicea. So look at verse 7, chapter 3. And to the angel of the church, or to the messenger of the church in Philadelphia, right? Now, I don't think I need to say this, but this is not Philadelphia, PA. (laughs) Philadelphia, Asia Minor, um, modern-day Turkey. Uh, the city of Philadelphia was named for the same reason the one in PA was named. Philadelphia, of course, means city of brotherly love. Uh, Philadelphia in Asia Minor, in the Roman province of Asia Minor, in the first century was named thusly because Adelus, King Adelus, so loved his brother, and he was known for his great love for his brother, that the city was named Philadelphia. So verse 7 again, And to the messenger of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. Let me say a few words about Philadelphia, besides the fact it's an ancient city of brotherly love. Uh, About 28 miles from Sardis, that's where I left you last week, uh, the, the fact that you're going to see a reference to new names a little bit later in this letter probably comes from the fact that Philadelphia uh, had the gift of two new names not long before the time of um, John the Revelator. Uh, at one point it was called Neo-Caesarea, the city of the new Caesar. Uh, they, of course, when you name yourself the city of the new Caesar, you kind of sense who it is you're trying to cozy up to, the Caesar. Uh, And at one point, they renamed themselves Philadelphia Flavius, 
again, Flavius may not be familiar to, but Flavius was the family name of the Caesars toward the end of the first century. So twice uh, in their recent history, recent for John the Revelator, they, they as a city received new names. Just kind of file that thought away for a little bit because we're going to return to that. Um, you'll notice that Philadelphia, as we read through it, Philadelphia is like Smyrna in that it's one of only two of these seven cities that has commendation or affirmation from the glorified Christ, uh, but no condemnation. Like Smyrna, Philadelphia is going to be praised, but they're not going to be condemned for anything. So the the church at Philadelphia was a great, great church, evidently. Um, And it actually was one of the last Christian regions to survive in Turkey after it was taken over by the uh, Muslim Ottoman Empire. So Philadelphia um, should have great warm fuzzy feelings when you say the name just like the name Philadelphia probably will cause that to arise the city of brotherly love uh, they, they were a pretty strong Christian outpost in the first century so nothing to condemn from Jesus for the church of Philadelphia uh, the next church by the way Laodicea there'll be nothing to commend it's the exact opposite here there's nothing to condemn Notice how Jesus is referenced in verse 7. The words of the Holy One, that probably doesn't surprise you, a reference to Jesus. The True One, that shouldn't surprise you as a title for Jesus, who has the key of David. Now, what you need to remember when you hear this reference to the key of David is King David, the key of David, would be the key to the king's house. Well, it shouldn't surprise you that this glorified Christ is the one who holds the key to the king's house. That's going to become significant as we make our way through the letter to the church of Philadelphia. Not only does he have the key of David, the key of authority, the the key of power, the key that lets you into the king's house, he actually says, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. So as soon as you hear this reference to the glorified Christ, you should start thinking some door's been closed for these people, these Christians in the city of Philadelphia in Asia Minor. And uh, you will see in this letter from Jesus to them, uh, there was a door that was closed to them here in the first century. Uh, It was a painful closing of a door. We've actually already seen it once before with one of the other churches. We're going to see it again with this church. So look at verse 8 so we can kind of get a sense of, of the door that's been closed to them and why it's going to be so important that this Jesus is saying, I've got the key, key to the king's house, and I control that door, and I will not close that door on you. So that's how Jesus referenced. Look at verse 8. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. Now, I've heard some great sermons on uh, this being a very evangelistic church, church doing great evangelism, uh, sort of with the understanding that this open door is an open door of opportunity to take Christ to the region. And it's always been a great sermon 
about the need for the church to know how to reach out and do evangelism and take the gospel of Christ to the surrounding region. It's a great sermon usually I've heard based on this text. I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about here, though. I don't think the door here that's being opened for them is just a door of opportunity. I think the door, and again, you'll see this in the context. Context is always very important for understanding the text. You'll see, as we read on, what door has been slammed in their face. So that's why I think it's significant to to this wonderful church in Philadelphia. Jesus is saying, I have the key to the king's house, and this is the door that's not going to be shut for you. This is the door that's not going to be closed for you this door to the king's house, because there has been a door that's been slammed in their face. Look at, look again at verse 8. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power. They're not a large, prominent church with great status. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Again, all of these letters are written to churches that are dealing with one major issue. The culture around them is trying to get them to compromise and accommodate and assimilate to the ways of culture. Sometimes we can accept the ways of culture. Sometimes we cannot. And daily we have to be people of such discernment, people of such wisdom, uh, people who walk close enough to the living Christ that we know when to accept, when not to accept. Uh, I think the church in the West, we just sort of Except wholesale everything the culture brings to us, uh, and that's an issue. Uh, but here, this church obviously was refusing to do that. This church was a conquering church. This church was a church that was staying true to Christ, that was holding fast to Christ, that was not accepting things from the culture that the glorified Christ um, did not want them to accept. They have little power. But yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. So again, commendation, no condemnation. You would expect at this point, like the other letters, for there to be a but. But there's not a but here. Uh, He goes straight from the commendation to some more promises. Look at verse 9. And here you're going to start getting a sense as to why it's important for this church to have Jesus saying that he's the one that holds the key of David. He's the one that holds the key to the king's house. He's the one that's opened a door for them that he will not shut. Because you get the context. Look at verse 9. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan. We've ran across that phrase before, and we, we talked about that phrase at length before, but let me just, in case you weren't here, let me just revisit the phrase a little bit. The synagogue of Satan, as is being referenced here, just like it was also referenced earlier um, in the church at Smyrna, was not being called a synagogue of Satan because they were Jewish. That's not the issue. John's a Jew. Many of the, even at the, in the, at the end of the first century, many of the Christians were still ethnically Jews. So anytime you read in the New Testament 
something about the Jewish people realizes a Jewish person writing something about the Jewish people. And perhaps you remember my illustration that I always use, that when you hear something in the New Testament that sounds anti-Jewish, you need to understand it's an inner family struggle. It's like Democrats fighting each other or Republicans fighting each other or your family fighting each other. Uh, you would do it one way, but people outside that family don't have the um, right to, to enter in that fight. Uh, you know, the Democrats can go at each other like cats and dogs on a debate stage, but let the, let the Republicans show up in the room, and all those Democrats will love each other. Well, that's the way you need to read anything in the New Testament that seems to be anti-Jewish, uh, particularly since the Second World War and the Holocaust. New Testament scholarship has been very sensitive about using anything from the New Testament that will cause you to be anti-Jewish or anti-Semitic. Um, which you shouldn't do that because these are Jews writing to other Jews talking about Jews. So, again, it's an inter-family struggle. So the fact that you have a synagogue here in Philadelphia being called a synagogue of Satan, it is not because they're Jewish. Uh, let me just give you a quick synopsis of the way Paul told us to deal with the Jewish community. If you are Jewish, you can be as Jewish as you want to be. And, and, and embrace Jesus. You don't have to keep, you don't have to quit keeping kosher. You don't have to quit keeping your festivals. You don't have to quit being very Jewish. You can wear your prayer shawl. You can, you can wear your um, kippah on your head if you're a male. Um, so Paul was pretty clear. As you look at the end of the book of Acts, Paul would go back to Jerusalem and he'd go offer sacrifices at the temple. So if you're Jewish, keep being Jewish. Now, what Paul contended for, and sometimes Christians get confused on this issue, what Paul contended for was this. If you're not Jewish, you don't have to pick up all that other stuff. But we should never look at the Jews and tell them to stop doing it. They can keep doing it, just add Jesus to it. Uh, that's why Messianic Jews will call themselves fulfilled Jews, completed Jews. They just add Jesus. They say Jesus is the Messiah they're looking for. Most of the Jews in the world don't think that Jesus was the Messiah they're looking for. So you have to be careful when you look at anything in the New Testament that appears anti-Jewish. These are Jews writing to other Jews. Even when Paul says you don't have to be circumcised, he's saying that to Gentiles. He's not saying that to Jews. He had Timothy circumcised. And it gets worse. He had Timothy circumcised as an adult male because he's going to be taking Timothy with him among some Jewish people. So he made sure Timothy was circumcised, but Timothy came from at least a Jewish mother. So in the New Testament, the issue is not that Jews should stop being Jewish. The issue is if you're Gentile, you don't have to all of a sudden start keeping keeping Jewish festivals and keeping kosher laws. So you need to make sure when you're looking at the New Testament that you're, you're interpreting what may be sounding anti-Jewish in the appropriate way um, because we learn the hard way, the horrible way. What happens when, when Christians don't read the New Testament that way? They can become very, very anti-Jewish. And then before you know it, you may have a Jewish supposedly Jewish nation um, during the Holocaust. Um, 
So the reason a synagogue in Philadelphia or the synagogue in Smyrna would be referenced as a synagogue of Satan was not because they were Jewish, but because they were doing something bad to the Christians there. Uh, They were doing something bad probably to many Christians who were Jewish. And we know that by the 90s of of the first century, after the fall of the temple and after Judaism had to regroup, and after Judaism had to say, okay, we don't have a temple, we can't do animal sacrifice, we don't have Jerusalem anymore, they sort of reinvented the Jewish faith, uh, to the Jewish faith that you know in the modern world, where they say instead of a temple with temple sacrifice, they now have synagogues scattered all over the world. Synagogues are Jewish uh, community centers where synagogues are places of prayer. And that's why after the fall of the temple, the Jews knew they had to do something. It's rather commendable. They knew they had to do something. So they said, okay, we don't have a temple. We don't have a place to offer animal sacrifice. What do we do now? They say, okay, now Judaism is centered on three things. Prayer, prayer, Torah study, and deeds of loving kindness. That's what they took in the place of temple sacrifice. But anyway, after the destruction of the temple, after the fact they had to leave Jerusalem, it was during that period when the Jewish faith was was um, in massive change and the Christian faith was growing uh, that, that our divorce started happening rather rapidly with, with our Jewish roots. And what happened by the time of John here and you see it in the Gospel of John, too, by the way. Um, by the end of the first century, uh, the, the divorce had become pretty final to the point that in synagogue prayers in, in, in Palestine, particularly and around the world, it was growing. In synagogue prayers, one of the things that was prayed for was a curse on the Christian people, a curse on Jews who had embraced Christianity. Um, you probably know to this day, if you're very, very orthodox uh, and your like child becomes Christian, they may like literally hold a funeral for that child. That's in the very orthodox Jewish community. Uh, sometimes we get in divorce situations and we don't do really nice things to each other. By the way, as an aside, I've said to people for 35 years, if you can't create a Christian marriage, the next best option is let's work on a Christian divorce without killing the kids and destroying the property and hating each other. and Now, I know that's a little hard to work out sometimes, but it was for the Jewish community when, when, when Judaism and Christianity began growing apart. So uh, it got tough. And evidently in Smyrna, one of the seven letters, and here in Philadelphia, the, the local synagogue was really giving the Christian community a hard time. As a result of that synagogue prayer by the end of the first century that called down a curse on Christians, that was, in a sense, the slamming of the synagogue door on Jewish Christians. It got re- I mean, think about it. If you were a Jewish Christian, you were a Jew in, in the same way everybody else was Jewish except you had embraced Jesus, and there you are at Shabbat worship, and you're asked to pray a prayer that curses Christians, yeah, the door of the synagogue was being slammed on you at that point. So you're looking at a period in our history where um, there was a uh, rancorous divorce going on between Jews who had embraced Jesus and Jews who had not embraced Jesus. John the Revelator obviously was a Jew who had embraced Jesus. So that's why here in Philadelphia and in Smyrna earlier, 
they obviously were not only getting persecuted from from the Greco-Roman world, they were getting persecuted by the Greeks, by the Jews also. And like you see, sometimes in the book of Acts, sometimes the Jews who didn't have a lot of political power because they were under Greco-Roman or Roman rule at this point, they would actually get the Roman authorities to go after the Christians. And again, that's go read the book of Acts. You see that happening to Paul more than once where the Jews would go get the Romans to go after Paul. And that's usually when Paul would kind of say, by the way, I'm a Roman citizen. And that would sort of squelch some of what the Jews were trying to get the Romans to do, the Roman authorities to do to Paul. But in other areas, evidently the Jewish, in some areas, the Jewish synagogue uh, would use the local authorities, Roman authorities, to, uh, to intimidate or persecute the Christian community. Obviously, if you read this text here, that's why the synagogue's been called the synagogue of Satan. They're coming at us. So in that city, the door to the synagogue has been slammed in their face. Uh, we do know from earliest Christianity, probably what Jewish Christians were doing is we'd go to Shabbat worship on Saturday. Then after sundown on Saturday night into Sunday morning, we'd worship the resurrected Christ. So we got two good worship days in our earliest days. But again, the divorce started happening. They ended up with Saturday. We ended up with Sunday. Uh, I kind of like the idea of doing both. But we, we divided in this period when Christianity and Judaism was, was moving apart. So when you see something like the synagogue of Satan, you know, um, that's not all synagogues. You can't call the synagogue over here in High Point behind Emerald Baptist a synagogue of Satan because they have not come at me or you, as far as I can tell. Um, but the one here in Philadelphia evidently was. And that's why you got this all this imagery here about doors being open, doors being closed. Uh, so the, the open door here that Jesus, who has the key of David, the key to the Father's house, is saying to the, to the Christian community, you know, um, I've got the door to the Father's house open. And yeah, some, some other doors on this earth might be closed to you, but I'm going to make sure this door never closes. So verse 9, you need to understand verse 9, the light of that history. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Again, for John's perspective, like Paul's perspective, the best way to be Jewish is to add Jesus to your Jewish faith. So that's why, you know, the Jews who refused to do that, and particularly the ones who refused to do that and came at the Christians, uh, he was referencing them as a synagogue of Satan. He says, Who say they're Jews but are not but lie, behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Throughout the New Testament, I know this is not popular in some quarters, but throughout the New Testament, one of the things that's being promised to the Christian community is if we suffer with Christ, we will reign with Christ. Uh, that when, when Christ comes into his fullness one of these days, that somehow we get to participate in that kingdom. And that's what's being referenced here. There will come a point that uh, the, the world will accept the lordship of Christ. At that point... Um, They'll know that we're right. Yeah, they'll know we're right. Um, and we're going to be Christian about it at that point, aren't we? You can't look at them and say, nah, 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 I told you. So don't read this verse that way either. Um, that's the way some Christians would do it, I'm sure. Look at verse 10. Because you have kept my word 
about patient endurance. Again, all this is to help us endure so that we conquer. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. At this point, I think we're jumping ahead. We're jumping ahead to the rest of the book of Revelation. We're jumping ahead to what much of Jewish apocalyptic thought and then Christian apocalyptic thought teaches. Uh, If you can hold your place in Revelation, go to the book of Daniel. And I've mentioned to you several times, the book of Daniel was like the bestseller in Jesus' day. The book of Daniel is written to a community of Jews that are under foreign occupation and oppression. So we know why it was a bestseller in Jesus' day, because they're under Roman occupation. So the book of Daniel was so popular in Jesus' day uh, and the period before Jesus' time. Uh, The book of Daniel really does, uh, like much of the Old Testament, uh, really does influence the book of Revelation. Uh, Some of you know Mickey Eford. Uh, If you buy Mickey Eford's little book on Revelation, uh, it comes with his book on the book of Daniel. Uh, You need to almost learn about the book of Daniel and then learn about the book of Revelation. Uh, The book of Daniel uh, is the primary point in the Old Testament that that nurtures the thought of the book of Revelation. I've mentioned several times there's 600 allusions, four to 600 allusions. Everybody finds different allusions uh, to uh, to, to the Old Testament in the book of Revelation. Daniel certainly one of them. Look at Daniel chapter 12. In Daniel chapter 12, uh, this is um, one of the most obvious places what I'm getting ready to talk about is addressed in the Hebrew Bible. But it's addressed in many places in the Hebrew Bible, and it becomes a major theme in the New Testament. It becomes a major theme in a lot of the apocalyptic literature that Christians wrote that's not in the New Testament. But if you look at Daniel chapter 12, beginning at verse 1, uh, here we see a little picture of the end of history. Because, um, again, the book of Daniel is about how many kingdoms will come, but all those kingdoms that come will fall away on the earth. There'll be one final ultimate kingdom that will come, God's kingdom. That's what the book of Daniel is about. That's really what the book of Revelation is about. So if you look at 12.1, which is the last chapter of the book of Daniel, uh, you see um, the future being envisioned. And this is just typical Jewish apocalyptic. Um, Many, many, many books um, written in the Jewish world before the time of Jesus talk like this. Many of the Dead Sea Scrolls talk like this. Uh, You can go see the War Scroll. That's one scroll you can look up among the Dead Sea Scrolls that will talk like this. That before the end comes... There'll be a time of trial, uh, which Jesus would talk about maybe as birth pangs, you know. But there'll be a time of trial uh, that will give birth to the new age. In Jewish apocalyptic and then Christian apocalyptic, you've got this age and the age to come. And there'll be a period of birth pangs in the age to come. My wife told me years ago I had to quit uh, acting like I knew what birth pangs were like. I don't, but I hear tell they're really bad. So you women could tell us more about that. But I hear that birth pangs are really bad. 
that um, uh, there's birth pangs that will give way to the new age. Anyway, look at Daniel 12, 1 and following. At that time shall arise Michael, and again, I mentioned several times Michael's reference in the book of Daniel as the archangel protecting the people of Israel. The great prince who has charge of your people, has charge of Israel, the great prince who has charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. Tribulation, trouble, birth pangs, the new age will will come, but it will come with some travail. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. We've already seen that in the book of Revelation. We're going to see it more in the book of Revelation. It's reference to the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. You're hard-pressed to find many references in the Hebrew Bible about resurrection. Here's one of them, though, like Ezekiel 37. It does start getting written about at the end of the Hebrew Bible period. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. So in the period preceding the general resurrection, there will be a time of of great travail. Um, So now go back to Revelation. Is that the travail that um, the hour of trial verse 10 that John is referencing here um, maybe he may be jumping way ahead and talking about that the, the final great travail the final great tribulation the birth pains that will uh, end this age before the coming of the new age the important thing here a couple things are important here uh, Jesus says I will keep you from the hour of trial now Um, Lots of debate in the last 150 years on this one. But I go with the historic church on this one. That to be kept from any trial is to be kept in the midst of the trial, to be protected in the trial, to not be exempt from the trial, but to be maintained in the trial. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're thrown in the fiery furnace. The people look, and what do they see? They see a fourth person in the fire, in the furnace with them that they didn't know who it was. Well, we know who it was. Uh, so what you have throughout the history of the Christian people and the history of the, of, of, this, of the biblical revelation is that we go through great trials, we go through great tribulation, but somehow the promises and the presence of God sustains us in that. And we make it through. Even if we have to give our lives, we make it through. We will get home before the dark, eventually. Now, in the last 160 years, there's been a thought that has developed among Christians in the West, starting in Europe and then coming here, that to be kept from the final great tribulation means that somehow you will be raptured out of here. Uh, The historic church has always believed in a rapture, that's not the issue. Rapture just means being gathered to Christ. You know, we know we're going to be gathered to Christ at some point. That's a given. Uh, what started happening about 160 years ago, there was, a, to begin with, a very small group of Christians who said that what they think they found in the Scripture was that before the great final tribulation came, which they're very definite, they, they definitely say last seven years, 
and they're very specific about that, and that's not another topic. But they said before that final seven years of great tribulation comes, uh, you, you, you're going to get exited out of here. And then the final great travail tribulation will come. Um, the historic church has never seen that. And for the thousands and millions of Christian martyrs throughout history, it sounds a little disingenuous to talk to them about this. Now, for those of us who live in great comfort, who can't imagine going through any great trial or tribulation, we, we, we're sure that God's going to somehow zap us out of here and we won't have to go through any great trial or tribulation. Uh, keep in mind, the 20th century, more Christians died for their faith than any other century in Christian history. So what our experience generally has been is that, you know, you cut Christians, we bleed. We go through trials. We go through tribulations. We have gone through horrible times. There were quite a few Christians, particularly clergy, who died in the Holocaust. Um, so we've never got a, you know, do not go through tribulation pass at any point in our history. Um, you got people who say that will happen now. And the way I say it is this. If God wants to do something that none of us have seen for 2,000 years until the last 160 years, if God wants to do something to, to kind of rapture me out of here, I'm okay with that. He can rapture me out of here before I pay taxes next year, and I'll be okay with that. <laughs> but my, my gut feeling is, the history of the church is, that the people of God in the past have never gotten a do-not-go-through-tribulation pass. Uh, we've had to go through it. So if you're here at the end of history, and again, we have lots of Jewish, Christian, apocalypse. Go read all the Enochian literature. Go read all the Dead Sea Scrolls. You know, we were always very clear as to who will win. We was always very clear as to which kingdom will prevail. We were always very clear as to who will get to reign and rule for eternity. We're always very clear about that. But it's only been for the last 160 years that there have been a group that have come up and said, oh, you don't have to worry about that final great tribulation. You're going to be kind of like, you know, beam me up, Scotty, and you don't have to worry about it. Again, God can do whatever God wants to do. He can beam me. I've got a colonoscopy scheduled. He can, be, he can, he can take me, remove me from that if he wants. But my gut feeling is I'll have to go through it. We've never had a pass in Christian history. What we've done better in Christian history is create Christian martyrs who have died for their faith. Now, we have millions of those throughout Christian history. So when I hear a verse like, because you kept my word about patient endurance and I will keep you, you got to define keep you. So I define it the way Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were kept. I will keep you from the hour of trial. Not an exemption, but a presence or promises that will help us through it. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world um, to try those who, are, who dwell on the earth. Here's the first place it's going to continue the book of Revelation. There's almost a word used. It's almost a technical word used for the people who are part of, who are the worldly, worldly crowd. They are the earth dwellers. If I were making my trans, own translation, I would, I would say that here, to try the earth dwellers. Make it look like a technical term, the earth dwellers. Because what you have in the book of Revelation are those of us who belong to Christ versus the earth dwellers. 
and it's going to end differently for the earth dwellers, those people who realize, who think their citizenship is here. We know our citizenship's in heaven, so we're not the earth dwellers. Um, sounds almost a technical term. It's going to keep happening in the book of Revelation to try those who dwell on the earth. I'm coming soon. The soon there can be quickly, either way you want to do it. Soon, in God's time, you know, a thousand years is as a day with God, as he says in one of the Peter letters. So soon could mean soon, and we just don't think it's soon for us. It's been 2,000 years now. But if, if, you're, if you have an issue with the word soon, just, to, just translate quickly. When he comes, it's going to be quickly. Remember, like a thief in the night. I'm going to come soon. We'll come quickly. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. We've already talked about these crowns that you get as a result of winning the athletic contest. The one who conquers, there's that word again, conquers. you got to conquer. you got to conquer. You're not going to get a pass. You know, not have to conquer. You're going to have to conquer. Uh, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Now, again, if they just threw you out of the synagogue, this is a pretty neat promise. Okay, throw me out of the synagogue. I'm going to be a pillar in the temple of God. Now, to show you how you have to understand the book of Revelation and the symbolism of the book of Revelation, when you get to the end of the book of Revelation in chapter 21 and 22, you'll be told that when the kingdom comes, there will be no temple because God's light will be everywhere. Now, okay, so in chapter 21 and 22, there's no temple. Here in chapter 4, you're going to be a temple. You're going to be a pillar in God's temple. If you lose sleep over that, you're asking the wrong question at this point. Um what he's saying is, yeah, you might have been cast out of the synagogue, uh, but but you're going to be a pillar, you know, big stone pillar, immovable, permanent in God's temple. And again, remember, Paul, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, the church now. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. That's where the Spirit dwells. So there is a temple for God. It's the people of God. So we'll be a pillar. The other thing you need to keep in mind, and you'll see this in Laodicea, as I'm going to wrap it up fast, you'll see Laodicea. Um, this is an earthquake-prone region. Both Laodicea and Philadelphia have been destroyed by earthquakes. So again, to be a pillar that stands in the temple of God um, in permanence is, is a great thing. So that's the promise. Never shall he go out of it. There were times they had to leave Philadelphia and Laodicea because of earthquakes and, and you know the, the danger of the buildings falling in. They had to leave it, but we're going to never have to leave the temple of God. I will write on him the name of my God, the, um, the, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from God out of heaven. That's going to be chapter 21, 22. And my own new name. Keep in mind the name is a character. We're going to get the character of God uh, emblazoned in us. And again, I mentioned this city had been named new, name, new names twice. So we're going to get the ultimate new name, New Jerusalem, at the end here. Then in verse 13, you see the final, um, the final call to obedience. He who has ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now let me wrap up um, Laodicea and, and sort of mess up another good sermon for you. So here, Laodicea is the worst church. To the, to the messenger of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. This reference to the glorified Christ does not come from chapter 1. This is new. 
Um, so the words of the amen. And you know what amen means? It doesn't mean the end. It means so be it. It means that you are declaring that what was just prayed or said is true. So the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, that's almost repetitive. The words of the faithful, the true witness, the amen, the beginning of God's creation. You know, I don't have to tell you that Jesus is truth. Look at verse 15. Laodicea gets no praise. I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either hot or cold. I'm going to talk about this. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you. Literally says vomit you. I will vomit you out of my mouth. Um, I've been to Laodicea. It's ruins now. They're excavating it. A lot of pieces of ancient Laodicea all over the field because there's no city there now. It's just the ruins of ancient Laodicea. It's, it's very close to Heropolis and Colossae. As a matter of fact, if you go to Laodicea, you'll see Heropolis and Colossae on the same trip. They're right there very close to each other. Still in Heropolis, they have the hot springs. Thousands of people will be there enjoying the hot springs to this day. That's where the hot water came from, was Heropolis. Colossae was the other direction, was actually in a little hilly region, not mountainous, but a little hilly region near the mountains. So what what would water had to be piped from Colossae and from Heropolis into Laodicea. If it came from Heropolis, it would be hot water coming in. If it came from Colossae, it would be cold water coming in. But guess what it would be by the time it reached Laodicea? Tepid, lukewarm. Now, in the Roman world... They would have these banquets. And again, we're looking forward to a better banquet, the Messianic banquet. But in the Roman world, they'd have these banquets. And I know you've eaten your lunch now, but you're not still eating. So I'll tell you a little bit about Roman banquets. So in these Roman banquets, you'd have your hot drinks, you'd have your cold drinks. But you would drink some tepid water as an emetic to help make room for you to keep having your banquet. You picking up while I'm laying down? That was part of the ongoing banqueting in the Roman world. You just drink your tepid water and then you just keep on eating and drinking. Because what that tepid water will do to you. That's the image here for these people in this Greco-Roman world. He's saying you Laodiceans are like this tepid water that is used as an emetic to cause me to vomit. I will spit you out of my mouth. You're useless. I mean, hot water has a role. Cold water has a role. This tepid water, you're useless. So I think you're getting the feel as to how Jesus feels about the church of Laodicea. Now here's the issue. Why Jesus wants to vomit him out of the mouth. Verse 17, for you say, I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. The three major industries in Laodicea, and it probably was one of the wealthier cities in the central part of Turkey, three major industries, Banking, textile, and a medical community that created salve for the eyes. And that gave them all of their great wealth. That's why they think they have everything, but Jesus says you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. So you're not wealthy. You're not even clothed right. You're naked. And you are blind, even though you create the salve that's used all over the world. So they have this sense of self-sufficiency here, this sense of pride here in Laodicea that's causing Jesus to vomit them out of the mouth. Verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire. 
He'll help us get the real gold, the real wealth, such you may be rich. And white garments, the textile industry, the fabric industry in Laodicea produced a very sought-after black wool. He's saying, you come to me, that I can give you some white garments. You know what white symbolizes. So that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And I will salve, and I'll give you salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may really see. See, they thought they could see everything, but Jesus says they're blind. They're so spiritually blind. Then he says in verse 19, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. That's almost a quotation straight from the book of Proverbs. It gets picked up by the author of Hebrews in the New Testament. So Jesus is saying, you know, so I'm going to come and discipline you, church. And that's a good thing. Now here comes the image that we hear a lot, and I'm going to kind of mess up a sermon for you here a little bit. Verse 20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Again, you've seen the great painting by Holman called Jesus, the light of the world, where you got Jesus knocking on a door. It's a good painting, by the way. Jesus knocking on the door. And what do you notice about the door? There's no handle, no knob on Jesus' side of the door. So, you know, Holman painted that painting 100 years ago to tell you to open your heart to Christ. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Jesus says, and that's, that's certainly true. That's certainly true. Um, and that's why most of the time this sermon gets preached is encouraging individuals to open up their hearts to Christ. And you individuals certainly do need to open up your hearts to Christ. But what the context here here is, is this is Jesus knocking on the door of the church of Laodicea, saying, can I come in? Think about that image a minute. The Laodicean church, the Laodicean Christians, they don't realize Jesus is on the outside. They need to let the master in. He's not even in the church. Because they are so far strayed from what they need to be. Their pride, their sense of self-sufficiency has taken them so. Is this Jesus not just knocking on an individual heart? That's true. He knocks on our individual hearts. But he's knocking on the door of the, of the church in Laodicea and says, Y'all haven't even noticed. I'm not even there with you. Y'all, y'all have slammed the door. Kind of like Philadelphia, the Jews did to Philadelphia. You've slammed the door on the master, and I'm not even in the church with you. So that's the image here. Um, but notice it says, you know, um, I'll come in with him and I'll eat with him if you open the door. And again, there's probably an, uh, an image of communion here. But particularly if you think about communion being a foretaste of the heavenly banquet that we'll all enjoy one day in heaven. Every time we receive communion here, it's a foretaste of what we're going to receive at the messianic, heavenly, eternal banquet one day. Jesus is telling the church, can I come in? You know, I wonder how many churches there are in Christendom that have banished Jesus a long time ago, and they haven't even noticed yet. You know, I mentioned to you sometime, I've said to the staff here several times, you know, I've often wondered if the Holy Spirit left for a week, would we notice I mean, some things would probably continue on like normal in the life of the church. But, you know, what would we miss if the Holy Spirit left us for a week? There are churches that have a cross on the top of their building, and Jesus may not even be in residence. That's that's the issue with the church of Laodicea. But he says, if you'll just let me in, I'll come in and I'll have sweet fellowship and intimacy with you. I'll commune with you here and I'll commune with you for eternity. Verse 21, back to the same old themes. The one who conquers... 
can't miss that in these letters. I will grant him to sit with me on my thrones. We will be co-regents with Christ. As I have also conquered, as I have sat down on my Father, with my fallen throne, you see at the right hand of the Father. And then the final call, he who has an ear, let him hear, let him obey what the Spirit says to the churches. So, we have pretty much seen every possible condition for an earthly church. So we've seen the picture on earth. So in chapters 4 and 5, we will see the picture in heaven. So... I owe you five minutes. Go in peace. Meet your neighbors.